Hello and a very warm welcome to this week's programme. Now, my guest today will be instantly recognisable right throughout the island for two main reasons. One, his voice is heard every other week on Manx Radio, extolling the varied range of the tools of his trade. And secondly, there cannot be a household in the land that hasn't had a family photograph for whatever celebratory reason taken by my guest today, who is none other than Percy Morrison, Morrison Photos, Tinwell Street in Douglas. Percy, a very warm welcome indeed to the programme. Thank you, Geraldine. Now, people will say to me, it's been very remiss of me, I'm sure, not to have had you on the programme before. And in fact, um, I'd have to go along and, and say yes, indeed. But however, we've got you here, we've got Percy in person, talking about himself now. This is the whole thing, not trying to, <laughs> not trying to sell us the latest digital camera or whatever. So set the scene for us. You were born on the butt, and for people that are not familiar with that term... Church Road in Onken. And you went to Onken Primary School, and then on to what was Douglas Boys High, um, now St Ninian's. That was quite That's a prestigious right. school then, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was one of those... This is the day when you had to sit an exam to get there. So only the ones that had... Question mark. A bit of extra brain power were the ones that got there. Those that didn't carried on a primary school to finish their education. So we weren't too bad. But Onken gave a very good basic education, and a lot of pupils from there went to the high school. But strangely, um, I believe academia really wasn't to the forefront of your interest then. When you were younger, it was horses. You were mad about them, but of course, it cost a lot of money to have a horse. Very few people had their own horses in those days because, again, we are talking about the days where work was one of those ethics that was, wasn't always easy to get. A lot of people earned very low wages, so owning your own pony was a thing. So house trick riding stables happened to be just around the corner from where I lived, and that's where a lot of people learned to ride and developed a love of horses. And as you say, uh, academics was something at the back of my mind then because there was no uh, l- uh, guidance at all in schools in those days. No careers. No, no career opportunities at all. You know, you were expected to sit your exams and when you'd passed them, you moved on and they weren't really bothered about what you did. So that was uh, quite difficult, actually. I mean, oh, yeah. jobs can't have been all that plentiful. No, when I left school, I hadn't the foggiest what I wanted to do. I mean, it was one of those things. I loved horses. I did temporarily work up at the stables, but that wasn't a career thing. What about I, your father? What what trade was he in? Well, again, he should have had a trade. If he'd born another generation, he would have done. But he delivered bread. He was a bread delivery man. And very popular, like the old-fashioned people that delivered bread and milk and all sorts, they were a welcome face at all the houses they went to. In fact, one of his problems, I know, was getting round the place without too many cups of tea and rounds of toast because <laughs> it was one of those areas. And, of course, as a youngster, I used to go and help him. He started with a, with a horse and cart, and it was the old-fashioned carts that were the very high ones. And, of course, as a child, to climb up on this thing that looked massive to me and sit on the top was a wonderful treat. And, of course, at the weekend, to go and help look after the horses. It was great fun. <laughs> but your father was clever, though, um, with his hands, wasn't oh, he, as well? Very, very skilled indeed. He could turn his hand to anything. I owe a lot of my practical capabilities to the training I got from him. He could do electrics, he could do wiring, he could do painting and decorating, wood fabric, anything at all, you name it, and he could do it. Really very, very skilled. Mm-hmm. And if he'd born a few years later, I think he would have ended up in a profession or a trade of some sort. He even made some furniture. Yes, he did. 
And, and this is something that you really have inherited because you, I think you enjoy mending things, at least. Oh, yes. I, I'm, I, I don't do as much around the house nowadays as I used to, but I, mean, I used to take great delight in building things myself, doing things myself. It was all... Uh, it wasn't for the money side. It was the pure pleasure of producing something that was yours in the way you wanted it to be. So what age, then, did you leave school at... And uh, what would have been your first job? Ah, well, <laughs> my first job was in a firm, again, that a lot of people won't even remember now, very sadly, Todd Hunter and Elliot's in Duke Street, Ironmonger's Extraordinary. And that was a wonderful <laughs> inroad into the things that people used in their houses. And in those days, of course, you, we take it for granted nowadays, things like sellotape and plastic bags and all that. But in those days, it was rolls of brown paper and bits of string. And if somebody bought a pound of nails, you had to <laughs> tear off the right bit of brown paper, dump the nails in, learn how to wrap them and tie them with string. It's quite an education. And again, it was great fun to work there. Again, I was working with people, which I thoroughly enjoyed all my life. And that was one of the things about the, it was a, a career that wasn't really going to go anywhere. And then the opportunity came up from there to take an apprenticeship. Now, of course, in those days, any parent that could get their child into an apprenticeship, they thought, oh, that's it. Didn't matter what. You're an apprentice, so you were going to make something of your life. Because so, you were going to have a trade for life, literally, yeah. then. I was I was an apprentice engineer at the with the Douglas Corporation in the power station. Pull Rose Power Pull Rose Station. Power station. And, of course, the laugh is I saw all the things being built there that they've just demolished and <laughs> put something new in. So it tells you how time has flown by there. It was, it was great fun. Well, what must have got in the way here then? I mean, all young men were bound to be called up. And in 1953, that was what happened to you for national service. And you actually applied to join the Air Force as an engineer. That's right. And anybody that was serving their time, you uh, instead of getting called up at 18, your call it was deferred until you'd finished your time. So you then were going in as a skilled tradesman, whatever it was. So I went in as an engineer. I was accepted as an engineer. I had to take a couple of trade exams, which then upgraded me on, onto a technician rate level. And that was wonderful because that meant I was on a little bit better pay than the average but not a lot they didn't pay a lot for national servicemen but the other opportunity of course was as nobody had a lot of money was to volunteer for overseas service and I think all the national servicemen that wanted to really see a bit of the world did because nobody could afford to travel in those days and this way you could do it at the government expense it didn't matter where you went you went somewhere other than the Isle of Man which was a great experience. <laughs> well would your parents not have been concerned with the idea of you going you know far away? Probably my Father would pr probably take this all into stride. Mothers being mothers, of course, would worry their, their son because I was an only son, so the, the only son vanishing off the face of the earth as far <laughs> as they were concerned. Uh, but they, I don't, they never said anything, but I, I know my mother would be, would be worrying, but it worked out all right. I'm now, where was your first post then? Well, the first one overseas, I went to the Canal Zone. Uh, so that's the middle of Egypt, down, down by the Fayed Canal. And it was one of those things... It was a boring posting if you let it be boring because all you had was sand, sand, nothing but sand. Uh, but again, there was lots of uh, camp entertainment went on. I was in, in a big maintenance unit. Um, I joined the local theatre group there. We got involved in putting on productions like Cinderella. I 
Cinderella. Cinderella. Now, what part did you play in that person? Well, you've only got to look at me to see I was typecast. I end up as one of the ugly sisters. I mean, that, that tells you a lot, it does. Uh, and I only got that part because the guy that really originally was cast for it never turned up for rehearsals. And I was so enthusiastic. I was there for every rehearsal, had read in the part umpteen times, and they got fed up with me nagging as to why they weren't doing something about it. They said, right, you do it then. So I got stuck with it. But it was great fun. We, we thoroughly enjoyed it. And I met a lot of other Manx people stationed at other camps around the area. It was surprising how they popped up out of the woodwork. A boy I went to school with, in fact, was in an army camp only two miles up the road. And, you know, it was just one of those areas. It was fun but boring at the same time. But then I was only there for nine months, and then I got a posting then to Cyprus. Ah. Now, that that was manna from heaven. Cyprus, of course, as we all know now, is a very popular holiday destination, and rightly so, because it's a beautiful place, very welcoming people. And I arrived there on my birthday, of all things. Which was very fortuitous, as it turned out, and a complete turnaround career-wise for you. Yes, it's just one of those odd things that happen. You know, we, we don't know what life holds for us, but sometimes it throws surprises at you and turns you. I arrived on my birthday and was lucky enough to be billeted with some other chaps that I'd been with in Egypt who had also moved on to there. We were on an oxygen production plant, so we were on to the same sort of thing there. And so the first thing I said, right, lads, I'm here now. It's my birthday. Where do we go to have a night out? And they took me down to one of the nightclubs in Nicosia, which is where we were stationed, and they had on there the most wonderful Spanish flamenco show, which I knew nothing about. I'd never seen or heard of before, but I went in and I was enraptured. It was wonderful. The atmosphere, the, these girls and boys were really very, very good, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I asked afterwards, can we get any photographs of this? I'd love to have something of this for my album. No, no photographs. Nobody's got photographs. So that's stupid. So I went out and bought a camera and a flash gun simply to take photographs of this cabaret. And I went back another night, took some photographs, and much to my surprise, I discovered I turned out some quite good photographs with very little knowledge, really. But you and had an, an obviously an instinctive eye yeah, for the I, I picture. I had an eye for what made the picture. Now, I've said, all my life I've said since then, you can teach people how to use equipment. You can't give them an eye for a picture. And that's the one thing that I had, a natural ability. And I discovered that other people wanted to see the photographs, the artists themselves. So I'm starting to sell these things all over the place. <laughs> and I think I must have had a bit of a brain for an opportunity even then, because I thought, well, there's something going here that I can make something out of. So I went around a few more clubs doing the same sort of thing, started photographing these shows. And before long, all the head waiters and all these clubs all knew my face, and I got a welcome wherever I I went and I built up a nice little sideline. So whenever I was off duty, I was down in these clubs taking photographs or selling them and did enough, in fact, to buy a better camera before I left the services. <laughs> in fact, I was doing so well, I was getting around all sorts of places that I was seriously thinking about getting to mob there and staying there and setting up business. There was a local gentleman prepared to help me to keep me going there. And then just about that time, the troubles flared up, Eoka and all that sort of thing, and they all started throwing bombs at each other with the British left pig in the middle. And as I'd know, maybe it was a wiser decision mm. to head for home, which I think is just as well that I did because there was martial law declared shortly after that. And, and that's when the, the and, island split, didn't yeah, it? And that's when the island split. All sorts of, of, of problems there. And people did survive it, but it got a lot trickier. So I headed for home. And well, that and I don't want to lose this wee bit of your story here because a lot depends on it, really, that made you help to make your career so successful yes, later yeah. on back on Manx Shores. Music and dance, well, we'd seen that in the flamenco cabaret Indeed, show. Yeah. Um, had they always been a passion in, in your life? I mean, 
Derby Castle would have been the place for well, families to go then well, to you, dance. You're quite right. It's it's fun of before the dance bit even. A lot of people forget that the Derby Castle had a theatre as well as a dance hall. And I can remember pre-war when I was only a little boy there, going with my mother and father every Thursday night through the summer, we went to the variety show at the Derby Castle. And I always remember, as well as the seats across the middle, they had a bench seat ran right down the edge. And my mother was only short, she was only five foot tall. And we always got early to sit on that bench seat because nobody could sit in front of her then, so she could always see. <laughs> and there were some wonderful acts. I can't remember the names now. I was far too young for that. But I always do remember going along and what wonderful shows they were. And, of course, you came out from there and went into the ballroom and Flory Ford, of course, would be entertaining then. So you developed a love for theatre and dance, which post-war, my mother and father still were keen on that. So whenever there was a rep company on at the Gaiety Theatre, we had regular seats for that, just as we had for the Derby Castle. We'd go along and look at it. And, of course, the funny thing is that my first part-time job, which I'd forgotten until you mentioned it, was selling programmes at the Palace and then the Derby Castle. This was just a summer thing. You did your schooling, and they shot down there and sold programmes. So you got to meet all the artists and see all the shows. And, of course, by then I'd developed a love of ballroom dancing. So I got to dance in the Palace Ballroom the Derby Castle Ballroom as well, which was great for But not only did you develop a love of ballroom dancing uh, to the fact that it became uh, one of your hobbies, but um, you took part in a number of competitions and you were, now this may surprise a lot of your (laughs) photographic customers (laughs) and listeners, but you were the Isle of Man Dance Champion in 1967, 69 and 70, no less. And the amazing thing about this was that although learning to dance was a sort of a social thing in those days, It did not come easy to you, did it? Nope, no. Some people had natural rhythm. I had two left feet. That's the only way to describe it. I went, and that was the point, I went to learn to dance properly in the hope that I'd get it through my thick skull, what it was really all about. And I can, at this stage, say a big thank you to all those valiant ladies that helped me get round the floor in those days because I must have been murdered to dance with. And I went on like that for a long, long while, and then suddenly it clicked. Suddenly it all happened, and rhythm suddenly meant something to me. And from then on, I could dance, I could follow the music, and we went on from then. Of course, it got beyond being a social thing then, because I was enjoying it so much that I wanted to get better and better. And I, I did. <laughs> did people want photographs of themselves, you know, dancing around? Had that sort of become oh, yes. the vogue then? Oh, yes, yes, that was definitely the thing. Mm-hmm. And there were photographers in all the main ballrooms. But I got involved, of course, when the competitions came on because I would be competing one minute and taking photographs the next. It was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, we may be jumping a little bit out of context here. What happened exactly when you finished your national service then in 1955? Well, it was again, it was one of those funny things. I'd trained as an engineer, served my time as an engineer. When I came home, just by sheer fluke, there weren't any vacancies for an engineer, but there happened to be one for a photographer. The firm that I joined then, Kegs, had just taken on uh, the contract for the photographer in what had been Cunningham's Holiday Camp. By then it was the Isle of Man Holiday Centre for a photographer there. And I was their first photographer in there. I, I got the job. They, there was, they hadn't had anybody before, so they were starting from scratch as well. They'd seen some of the work I'd done. They'd seen the equipment I'd got, so it was worthwhile. And the and tourist industry was booming here. tourist industry was massive in those days. There were thousands. The camp held about 2,000 people. 
On top of that, it was open to the public, and I can still can't understand it. You get a wonderful sunny summer's day, and there'd be 2,000 people queuing to go in the ballroom in the mornings, <laughs> in the mornings, to dance. And that would apply in all the ballrooms in the island that was happening, because these were all potential customers. You worked long, hard days, because I mean, it was a short summer by comparison. There was not a lot happening in the winter. You had to make do then, so you earned as much as you possibly could in the summer. So you worked a 12, a 16-hour day, you worked a seven-day week, and never thought anything of it. It was such great fun, because even then, taking photographs meant meeting people. I met a lot of lovely people. We had a lot of fun. It was really, really pleasant. If you think about it, I mean, it was the day still of the box brownie or move, maybe moved on to the Ilford Advocate or something like that. Clumsy but cameras. Clumsy really. cameras, no flash facility. That was the key thing. So very limited to what they could do. They could take static pictures. Yes, you can go take a view. They are going to take Uncle Jenny and little Johnny standing somewhere. But they couldn't take action-type pictures that easily. They couldn't do indoor pictures that easily, which is where we scored, of course, because we were using powerful flash guns. We could do the indoor pictures. And people were more than happy to pay a modest price to get memories of what they were up to. Um, it's years later that the easy-to-use cameras that with built-in flash that they could do it all themselves maybe cut out the necessity for having a professional there. But a professional still was able to do the job in the sense that he could organise people and do it. And that's where maybe I've scored over the years being a people person. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and, and bossing people about is possibly comes naturally <laughs> to me. Well, you got, you got promotion. Yes, I... Did the five summers in the in the holiday camp, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I then left and worked at the holiday camp, not as a photographer, but in charge of all their staff for a couple of years. So that was an experience in itself. There were a couple of hundred staff there. Uh, a couple some of hundred staff? Oh, yes. Oh, very Amazing. big employers. Um, the nucleus of them being local, but obviously... For the summer season, a lot were imported. They came in from Liverpool, from Ireland, from all around. I mean, it really was an amazing mix that you got. Mm -hmm. Some of them were right rough ones. We used to regularly run police checks on them to see who we were getting and who we weren't getting. And I built up great rapport with with the police at the time uh, because running a few names past them, any of the ones that were ones that had been in trouble before, they could usually give me the tip off to say to, to avoid them, you know. And it, it worked very, very well. But now, we, you met your wife there, Joyce, I didn't met, you? Yes. But and, she was and, certainly not of that brigade, was another she? Another fluky thing. Well, she was one of the come-overs. <laughs> she was there as a children's nurse. And again, you know, staff came in all sorts of categories. That was when I was a photographer because you had uh, waitresses, you had kitchen staff, you had porters. Then you had the professional staff like the entertainers, the nurses and things like that. So it's quite a broad mix of people. Um, and in fact, uh, your own David Collister spent a season there as photographer after, after I had left being a photographer there. Was he any good? Yes, oh, he was very good, David. He's never yeah. told us about that. Well, again, you see, personable. David has always been a people person. Again, he gets on with people. He mixes with people very well. He can talk to people. And that's the starting point. Learning to use the camera, it's not too bad. If you can get on with people, you're halfway there. You know, <laughs> He was very, very good at that, David. And again, I think he enjoyed the experience. It was the summer season when he was a student, I think. That, that was the way it worked. But I got promoted uh, into the kegs as a full-time operative there. And, of course, was expected to learn every part of the business. Um, so I, I learned how to print photographs. Uh, I learned on the repair side. This is where my engineering training came in useful. I did a, a spell on the maintenance. Then I moved into the sales side of it, the wholesale side of it. And 
and in between times still doing the photographs as well. So we did a bit of everything, you know. It was a great experience. Well, you worked for Kegs, I think, for 30 years in total. Did you never have an ambition then to have a business of your own? I'd never thought about it. It's just one of those things I'd never really thought about it. Uh, Other businesses came and went, you know, as, as they always do. And then one day Kegs decided they didn't need me after all, and I found myself with nothing to do. And I discovered afterwards they'd done me the biggest favour ever because I thought, well, what else do I do? So I thought, well, I might as well do my own business. So I started up on my own with a little bit of a struggle to get organised in the first place. This was in Bucks Road? And that was in Bucks Road, yes. 1987. 1987. It seems a long time ago now. <laughs> and... Like all things, you, you don't really think about it in, in, in the long term when you get involved in something like that. Uh, you know, it's a business, it's a way of earning money to keep the, the bread on the table and keep the family happy. I remember going into your shop, you'd only just started uh, business. Yeah. I think I wanted something simple like a passport photo, but, but I knew you. That's yep. the whole yep. thing. As you said, that was the most important thing. Oh, yeah. I think personal contact, I mean... I've been at it so long now that I'm I'm going round to people, and when I'm doing weddings, I'm the first thing that happens. I go to the house and they say, "Oh, that's a picture. Do you remember that? That's mum and dad when you did their wedding, you know." <laughs> and if I'm not careful now, I'm moving to the third generation as well. All the ones that got married young, I'm lively onto the grandchildren getting married. <laughs> so that flourished, and and of course the whole the whole business has changed out of all recognition now, isn't well, it? Well, I was very lucky in those days. I think the the fact that I've never put any store by the fact that I always got on with people and I liked people I hadn't really thought about it that possibly this was a two-way thing that because I liked them they also liked me and a lot of them were very very kind when I first opened up with let's face it I was working on a limited budget I had very limited stock and the number of people that actually came to me just because they felt they ought to come because I'd always looked after them was very very Mm. flattering indeed and and that's really what was the the launch pad that got us going and uh, it has it's changed very dramatically in the time that I've been involved. But photography has always been changing. That's why I've enjoyed it so much, possibly. Well, Never stand still. I was going to ask you, actually, I mean, we've had fads in every sort of business, you know, uh, d- down the years. So is this newfangled digital technology a fad or is it really here to stay, Percy? No, it's not a fad, very definitely. Well, we've had fads in the past, of course. We've had 110, 126, DISC, APS. All these things have come and gone, and a lot of them I knew would only have a short life. But digital, the minute I saw it and heard about it, I knew this was going to be the future. It's changed phenomenally over the last two or three years. It has moved on in leaps and bounds, and we now have things that you wouldn't have dreamed possible when it first came out. And they'll get bigger and bigger and cheaper and cheaper. Would you say that they still have to have that eye? Oh, yes. You always have to have an eye for a picture. You don't realise it. Um, as you know, I, I enjoy going cruising. That's that's my way of having holidays nowadays. I'm trying to catch up in all these countries I've never visited in, in the years gone by. <laughs> and so I we're doing expect it now. you're still taking hundreds of photos, yeah. are you? Um, but when I do it, I see lots of other people taking pictures and I see what they've taken compared with what I've taken. And it's very pleasant to see that with very little effort, I've created a better picture than they have because I was immediately able to see that's where the picture is or isn't. Take it and move on. Because you haven't got a lot of time. You don't. I don't want to spend my whole time taking photographs, but I want the memories. And that's what photographs are still to me, is the memories of it all. Well, of course. And we, we've got lots of memories. I mean, you know, over the years, 
in the island alone, we've had all these royal visits. Now, I've been very, very lucky that over the years, I think I've covered almost every royal that's ever come to the island. And that's been a great privilege. How good are our royal family, you know, at actually assisting photographers, official photographers, as you would have been, you know, at events? They're very good. The... The people that drive them round the bend are the national press photographers many a time who are very intrusive, who are trying to do all the things they're not supposed to be doing. Um, whereas people like myself that are there to cover an event, they appreciate that we are an aid and they try to aid us. They know that without the publicity that we provide, the people who meet them want to have a picture of them shaking hands with the Queen or the Queen Mother or whoever it happens to be, and that's going to be wonderful for them for years to come. We simply, they are very, very, very helpful indeed. We've never had a problem with any of the royals, even the ones that so-called bad press people, the ones that they didn't like the press. Princess Margaret. Princess Margaret didn't do a lot with her, did, did, did some, but I only did Timwell with her, so didn't see a lot. Princess Anne... When she was over a few years ago, she was having a run-in with the press and the reputation was there. Don't cross her, you'll be in real trouble. Um, we had to... She came over for the Commonwealth Parliamentary Conference that was in the island and they had a, a, a marquee in the grounds of Government House where all the Commonwealth delegates were to meet her. The marquee was far too small, really, but they'd done the best they could and really we were pushing each other all over the place to get round there. I always remember her equerry coming up to me before it all started, and he headed for me, and I thought, oh, dear, here we go now. Now we come to the trouble, the do's and don'ts. And all he said was very, very simple. He said, Her Majesty would be very grateful if you tried not to fire the flash straight in her eyes because you'll appreciate this happening a few hundred times. It can be a bit of a strain. And I said, right, that's no problem at all. We will do our best. I simply will point out that it is very, very crowded. And they said, yes, I know that. All we ask is just... Do your best. So we did. So we tried where we could. We elbowed our way around the place. Every time somebody shook hands, you tried to take a picture and you keep moving. And we tried to work obliquely so that the, the full power went to the other person rather than to... We did the best we could. At the end of it, he came up. He said, Her Majesty was very, very delighted. He said, you cooperated wonderfully. Now, that's all that's required. And that, that's applied every time we've covered royalty, that the cooperation bit has always been there. And they've been a real pleasure they have. What about some of the showbiz stars that have been here? Showbiz stars are great fun. Now, they are totally off the top, as you know. You know quite a lot of them very well. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a lovely instance because uh, it, one of our local residents, I mean, this is our Norman, our Norman. Now, whenever you see Norman, you can guarantee you will be entertained always, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen. He did a, a surprise birthday party a few years ago for Rick Wakeman, and it was in the Castlemona Hotel before it was altered, so it was the, the old dining room there, and they had a cake there, and they had prepared a dummy as well and they announced this Rick had arrived met everybody blah 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 so Norman goes across and picks up the dummy cake and the next thing of course Norman's doing all his tricks and he's rolling around the floor and then carrying this cake and takes it straight over and then before the staff could stop him he went back and grabbed the real cake and did exactly the same thing with all the, the waiters all following <laughs> waiting for this cake because it never did it never collapsed and Rick wouldn't have been bothered if it had it dropped because it, it was such great fun well, now, um, when are you writing your autobiography? 
<laughs> oh, I think that'll be far too boring to write it right down. <laughs> it's not too bad over the air. You can make a bit of fun out of it, but I'm not a writer, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, all you need to do is just to put where the picture was taken. Just, you know, a huge book of all... All the photos that mean so, so much to you. Well, a lot of the early photographs, of course, I don't have because I was working for another company. So they are their copyright, not mine. So it's (laughs) only the later ones that I've got. But even in the last few years, I've clocked up quite a few. So it might be worth a bit of research there. I'd better have a look at it one day. Well, this has made this programme then all the more precious to have had my guest today, Percy Morrison. I'm sure that you will all have enjoyed him immensely. Percy, you've made a wonderful, fascinating guest on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Geraldine. (laughs) 